You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Daredevil, episode 14A, covering a period of Daredevil from 1989 to 1990. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Daredevil co-host, Adam Chapman. Adam, which issues are we talking about today? So we are talking about Daredevil annual number five, which was originally mistakenly numbered as number four. (laughs) Uh, And we're also talking about Daredevil 271 to 277. That's funny about that mistake. I wonder how many people when they're, you know, going through the back issue bins and they're like, I just can't ever find Daredevil annual number five. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, that's actually a good point. I wonder how often that comes up. Yeah, I don't know. But I, for some reason, have two copies, two different copies of, of Annual Number 4. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. So last time we spoke, we talked about the first part. Actually, not quite the first part of Anna Senti's run, but we talked about the previous epic collection called A Touch mm-hmm. of Typhoid, and we worked our way through those stories. And now we are coming to this volume, um, Heart of Darkness, the epic collection, volume 14, which apparently is, I think, one of the rarest and most sought-after epic collections out there right now. Is it really? Why? It just sold out, and nobody can find it anywhere. Like, it's it's gone. So people who are coming into the epic collection now, and new, new to it, are looking for these Daredevil epics, and they can't find this one anywhere, and it's going for crazy prices online. So it's one of the top requested um, epic collections that, that, pe- that people really want Marvel to reprint. Wow. And I think it's mostly because, like, this is an era that you can't really get anywhere else. It's not covered in yeah. the um, it's not covered in the omnibus form. It's not covered in the masterworks. They're not up to that point yet. And uh, and I guess it is in essentials, but it's um, or is it? I don't even know if it's in the essentials. I don't know if they stopped the essentials before they got to this era. But it's not a highly reprinted era. So when it when it was out and people want to collect Daredevil from the start to the finish, like this is kind of your only option. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. You know, actually, it's interesting about Nascenti's run in general. So I was I was listening to uh, an episode of the uh, the Word Balloon podcast where they're talking to talking to Chip Sadowski, who's obviously currently writing Daredevil, and he was saying how his favorite run on Daredevil was Nascenti's run, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There there are so many acclaimed runs of Daredevil. It's it's interesting that uh, you know you put Nascenti near the top, and people are like, oh, okay, like more than Frank Miller or or Bendis, or Wade, like there's there's a lot of great options for really good Daredevil yeah. runs. It, it is interesting though, actually, when you, even when you, you look at that as being the shortlist, uh, which is a very good shortlist, and how each one of those writers really manipulates the character to be more in lockstep with kind of their own worldviews. That's true. Like Frank Miller's is very Frank Miller. 
and or, I mean, young Frank Miller. Yeah. Bendis, you know, feels like Bendis. Brubaker's feels like Brubaker's. Mark Wade feels like Mark Wade. Like Mark Wade's spin on what Daredevil is. Even Charles Sewell. You know, they they all very good runs, very good versions of Daredevil. But they're so different from each other because they kind of reflect who they are as writers more so than most characters. Whereas Spider Man's always kind of Spider Man. Um, you don't, don't see him change that much to reflect the writer. Whereas I think with Daredevil, you see that a lot more. That's very interesting. Now, would you say that that's because Daredevil doesn't have the iconic status that the other characters do? So you can be fast and loose with the, that your take on the character? I think that's part of it. And I think part of what, not, not holding down Spider-Man, but everyone kind of goes back to the classic, right? That with Spider-Man, they're kind of like, well, you know, at the end of the day, they either want to get back to basics and kind of be more like Stan and, and Steve or Stan and, um, and John, right? Right, yeah. Um, and that's kind of, whereas Daredevil doesn't have that. He doesn't have that kind of iconic period. If anything, they go back to Frank Miller and that kind of right. that, you know, late 70s period. But no one ever goes back to, oh, I really want to go back to the 60s Daredevil. That's not usually <laughs> something you hear. No, and, and no. And, and like there's other characters who are similar to that. Like Iron Man, I would almost lump in with that idea too, where he doesn't really have that iconic Silver Age uh, you know, version of the character. So the character is a little bit mutable as a result. Whereas, again, characters like Fantastic Four has a very strong Silver Age core. So everyone will kind of go back to aping that. Whereas yeah. characters like Daredevil and Iron Man don't have that kind of solid Silver Age base. In fact, Iron Man, the, sil- the Silver Age base for Iron Man, I think probably starts with the movie. And now everybody's yeah. going to go back to the movie. Uh, in, if, if future writers are always going to go back to the, the standard that Robert Downey Jr. has set for that character. I don't think they'll ever, you'll ever see a... a, a um, a Tony Stark before that. I mean, I think maybe Michelinie and Leighton were maybe the, the forerunners before that. But other than that, yeah, there's not a... Iron Man was never really yeah. that popular. No, like you had, you had... He never had runs. Like Iron Man never... Like he had... I guess Michelinie and Leighton were probably the longest run. Yeah. Um, but he never generally had a long you know, run like Daredevil where you had like an iconic thing happen. You had storylines, you had iron or like armor wars or Stark Wars, whatever you want to call it, but you never really had like a long sustained period Whereas Daredevil has kind of been an embarrassment of riches considering the character was kind of an also ran until Miller kind of reinvented them. And then you have, you know, we already, you know, easily were able to drop five or six iconic runs for a character that was, you know, C-list until the late 70s and, yeah. and is now maybe B-list at best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, to to cycle back to Anna Senti, she is one of those people who has definitely put her own mark and personal views and personal touch uh, to her run. Like, if you read this, it's like, wow, this is very Anna Senti. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, while we're talking about it, let's see what some other people around the internet have said um, about this volume as well. I asked for your comments on social media. Here's somebody who said on Instagram, this is uh, Guy Eccentric, uh, says, in my top five Marvel epics. Wow. Top five. Anna Senti, once again, brilliantly incorporates the event tie-ins and Matt's literal trip to hell as a highlight and some of JRJR's best stuff. Hmm. Over on Facebook, Agent of Flamingo says, a great book, but the one with Typhoid Mary is better, in my opinion. Justin says, I like that it's Anna Senti's Daredevil. I do not like that it's out of print. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yep, we'll see. We'll get a few of those comments here. Uh, Let's see. 
uh, Relenado Comics, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that one, says, I liked better the previous volume, although I understand what Nascenti was trying to do, taking Matt out of his natural environment. The, the series feels out of beat most of the time. Uh, on the other hand, JRJR art is great in these issues. Mm. And uh, let's see, Shibi says, I like the previous volume focusing on typhoid much better. That's becoming a common uh, thread here. The new yeah. supporting cast, the spoiled daughter and the strange AI girl are interesting, though. The Ultron issues were a highlight. Same for the showdown with Mephisto. The JRJR art takes some time to getting used to. Mm. Brian says, I know he's got a lot of detractors, but I've always adored J.R.J.R.'s work on his run on Daredevil. And Oh, sorry, J.R.J.R.'s work and his run on Daredevil was no exception. Mr. Disco says, it's Nascenti with Ramita Jr. What's not to like about it? And, and, and Kyle says, J.R.J.R.'s Daredevil rules. Wish this were back in print so I could pick it up. Hint, hint, Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, over on Facebook, Brett says Ramita's art and the anchor, who's Al Williamson, uh, were great here and also great character designs. And that's interesting. I will definitely talk about some of the character designs of some of these characters that we are going to meet in this volume. Okay. Lucas says, I really like this volume. Ramita's art is at its peak here. The stories are crazy and everybody is on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, okay. Yep. And uh, a big comment here from Frank. He says, sometimes you have to follow the specifications. Daredevil, a.k.a. Matt Murdock, is a blind urban vigilante. Uh, this volume is more Daredevil as a blind guy in red in a remote town who fights Ultron and demons with two inhumans looking for a kid, a genetically created woman, and a daughter and a father with big communication issues, and, oh, we got angels too. Are these bad comics? No. They deal with interesting concepts like sentient life, political stances, feminism, etc. But for me, they miss the point. It's like Spider-Man in space. It could be fun, but it can't last because it doesn't work. And Ascenti writes some truly personal stories there. And the art by Ramita Jr. and Al Williamson is incredible. A lovely story by Rick Leonardo, too. And more of a mixed bag regarding the annuals. We'll get into that in our next... Uh, oh, actually, we're reading an annual in this one, aren't we? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he says, just generally, it's a weird book. I would absolutely agree with that. <laughs> that it's a weird book? It's ex an exceptionally strange book, yes. Yeah, and you think that the the previous volume went into some weird places, but this one just, I think, um, Lucas who says everybody's on drugs, like, yeah, there's just, yeah. it just gets crazier and crazier as you kind of get into, and we're only going halfway through this book, and it gets crazy, Yeah, and then it gets even crazier after that, so yes. Yeah, I would, I would say that the, the last volume went crazy at the end, and this one just lives there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's so strange. But, um, well, you know, let's move on and talk about this volume. What are the things that we need to know about this book? If you were to just pick this one off off the shelf without having read the previous uh, Touch of Typhoid, what do you need to know, Adam? That is one of the roughest entrances to a Daredevil character ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, of every volume of every epic collection we're ever going to get with Daredevil, I don't think it's ever going to be harder to establish the status quo before you read the book. Um, yeah. I mean, this guy used to be a lawyer, but he's not now. And we don't talk about it. And he's upset about his life, but we don't talk about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's got these special powers, but he doesn't really talk about them. Like, it's such a weird, like, Daredevil is not really, like, he's he's on the road. He's kind of given up who he is. He's not really Matt Murdock anymore. He's just Daredevil or a stranger in red. 
and he's, you know, encountering weirdness and taking part in it. And half the time he's not really moving the narrative himself. He just gets himself wrapped into situations. Wow. Yep. That's very true. And I think you probably don't really need to know about that. I would say that the only other thing you really need to know is actually about the Inhumans. Uh, mm. Senti uh, wrote a original graphic novel, or maybe it was just a one-shot. I can't remember. It was called By Right of Birth. It came out a few years before this. And in that one, Medusa has a baby, and they, there's all of this controversy over whether the baby is to be considered royalty. Um, and so that that story continues in this volume. I, th- I thought that was an odd addition to this volume as well. If things couldn't get crazier, we added the Inhumans. Well, you know, I got to say, Curtis, thank you for doing the research on that, because I honestly never really thought about it. And I just kind of figured it was something from the, you know, some other storyline. But I appreciate you kind of figuring out what it's from and giving more context, because it does in and of itself seem like a bananas thing to have just enter into the story uh, as if we know what's going on. But um, but not like the comics don't do that sometimes. So I just kind of went with it. Um, right. But it's nice to know that it did. Like, it's funny because I know that later on this, that that whole idea of that child matters a lot later on. I think when Charles Sewell's writing that in humans. Right. So I was, so I was kind of like, Oh, this goes back that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's Anna Senti who did both of those stories. So it makes sense that she continues telling that tale here. Um, but yeah, man, kind of out of place. It's it's very strange. But we'll deal with that when we get to those issues as well. Okay. All right. The first issue that we have to talk about is Daredevil Annual number five. And uh, like you said before, it was originally uh, just labeled number four, when it, which it really wasn't. But the Epic Collection makes a note saying that they have uh, corrected the numbering on when they reprint the, the front cover here, <laughs> which is kind of silly. You yeah. should have just left it with number four, but oh well. Well, I guess maybe they did, maybe they corrected it for like a second printing at some point or previous collections or digital, like who knows, right? Yeah, that's true. Maybe. So uh, way back in the late 80s, Marvel did this thing where they would have this huge overarching story. They would run through all of the annuals that would be published this year. And so this particular annual is Atlantis Attacks Chapter 7. So I have not read chapters 1 through 6. And I think the only other chapter I've read in an epic collection is the final chapter, which I don't even remember which book that was in. So... Uh, oh, no, actually, no, I read the Moon Knight Punisher story, which is the, actually the chapter before this, which they, they actually reference in this issue. So that's right. I have yes, read that do, one. Yeah. Yeah. Now, be honest, reading those, you know, disparate chapters, does it in any way make you ever want to read it? Oh, no, no, not really. Like the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's, I mean, I, it's funny because downstairs in my basement, I do have the Atlantis Attacks omnibus. <laughs> yeah, have you read it? Um, I, I know I've read it. I definitely read it when I bought it, and I don't remember anything about it. the The plot is so convoluted, and there is just there, there's so much going on. There are actually like three or four separate stories that are happening. There's one that deals with a drug that's hitting the street that is turning people into serpents. And there's another Mm -hmm. story about um, Atlantis attacking the surface world. And there's another story about Tyrannus from the, in the underground uh, trying to bring like resurrect set or transport set the, the serpent demon, bring him to our world. 
And there's another storyline about women who are being kidnapped, women superheroes who are being kidnapped so that they can be vessels for the children of, of Set. Like there's all of this stuff happening, but we only get to talk about a little bit of that in this one chapter. And yeah. they, they try to do a little bit of recap. Um, and there's a little bit to do with Tyrannus that moves the plot forward. But really, like Daredevil doesn't even do anything in this issue, really. Uh, it's oh, no, more, he doesn't need to be here at all. No, it's more of a Spider-Man story and a Doctor Strange story. Uh, Daredevil just kind of shows up a little bit and doesn't do a, a single thing. <laughs> it's interesting. What is interesting about something like this is that it's not by Nesenti. It's by Jerry Conway. and there, But obviously he's writing Nesenti's Daredevil. And it, it, it just feels more of an awkward fit because it's like someone trying to kind of tap into the weird zeitgeist that Nesenti has, you know, kind of put into Daredevil using, and she usually has, you know, John Romita Jr. doing a lot of atmospheric art. And instead you have someone kind of trying to pick up and play with that toy with the much cleaner line work of Mark Bagley. Yeah. And you realize how it just does not fit um, because in order to kind of make this version of Matt Murdock work, you kind of need the grittiness of a John Romita Jr. That's very true. That's a good point because the art lends so much to just the the wild and wacky nature of this era of Daredevil. And yeah, and Daredevil is just, he's not himself. He's moody. He's he's trying to not be Daredevil, I guess. And so his interactions mm-hmm. with all of the characters in here, while they are very limited, are just off-putting because he refuses to like get involved. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with what's going on. So all this stuff kind of happens around him. Yeah, and it's it's just a weird story. Like even Daredevil's entrance to the story is kind of strange. With the like you know the and you have the guy who's like looking for his buddy and like the even the end the ending of that story seems kind of sad and like what is happening? Like it's just it's so depressing and like I I just didn't get much out of it. Like yeah. the the plot is not very interesting uh it's more of a doctor strange story as you said than anyone else's story i guess with a little bit of spider-man in there doctor strange is that weird version with the eye patch like what is happening yeah yeah he's a presumed dead i think this is either just before the sorcerer supreme series started or or just around that time uh yeah this is a very strange chapter and i felt the same way reading the other chapter it's like i think at some point i'm gonna have to you know get all of the chapters and read them all in a row to see if i actually enjoy the story because really just reading one of these chapters i can't tell if this is a good story or not i really can't yeah that that's true of a lot of these annual events i mean some of the books obviously ended up mattering more some of them didn't yeah um the the second story is a weird like if you if if you if someone just took the credits and burned them and didn't let you ever see who the, who did it, you would you have ever picked that Jim Lee was the guy who did this? Not at all. It's so not Jim Lee. Like uh, I mean, I, I think that the inker uh, who's the inker Kim Demulder. Yeah, Kim Demulder actually he he does a lot of um, heavy inking himself. His stuff on uh, Defenders really changed the look of the book when he was on Defenders. And so I can see that he's definitely doing that here. But there are just even some of the poses. Like when you see the wild boys in this very first page, Mm -hmm. the the one guy jumping around and with the fire coming from his hand and stuff, it just doesn't look like something Jim Lee would typically do. And this is early in his career, right? I mean, it's not that early. I mean, at this like he's already been on X-Men at this point. Has he? Oh, okay. Yeah, and I guess he's already been on Punisher and stuff. So uh, I guess I'll chalk it up. Because he launched yeah, he launches X Men with Chris Claremont in '91, um, and that and by at that point, like he had he's been already the a penciler. superstar. Yeah, and, yeah, he was already the regular penciler on X on Uncanny X Men in like the 260s. 
of yeah. Uncanny X-Men. And then 281 was when they did their big relaunch. So he, yeah, it's, it's in and around that period, unless he re- like, unless they kind of misattributed this and it's really just him doing breakdowns um, and maybe not much else because yeah, I, I, I don't see any of Jim Lee in this. Well, on page 31, the second page of this story, the the guy, the one guy holding his finger up to his lips kind of looks like Bishop, like a Jim Lee Bishop, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah, you're right, though. But And it's not just the it's not just the poses. Uh, Kim DeMolder, the way he does his shading is completely different than the way Jim Lee would do shading. All of the, the background shading, the, the, the motion lines, lines on the faces, not at all what Jim would do. So you're probably right. He probably just does the breakdowns so that Kim can fill in all of the rest with his own style. And it's a it's kind of a silly story as well. These the, the two guys try to take down like hijack a guy and uh a guy's car and take him down and then it turns out that's a bad guy and the police are happy with the the two wild boys for oh my God, doing that. So and then, weird. <laughs> and oh. then at the end they like start fighting with each other and I'm not I'm not sure exactly why they're fighting with each other and very very i don't know yeah and it's written by gregory wright like they like it's interesting the annual is so long yet so much of it i would be okay if they just took it out (laughs) (laughs) well and that's the argument some people are like you know what the annuals don't need to have all these backup stories uh take them all out especially the atlantis especially the serpent crown story that's coming up later like has nothing to do with daredevil why is it even in a daredevil epic collection but it's because the epics That's collect, they, yeah, they collect the whole thing. So they're going to collect the annual from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, I do appreciate their adherence to that, even when it is, you know, a little weird. Um, the next story I actually want to, I do want to men- make mention of the uh, Super Senses comparisons. Yes. Um, I like the idea of it. First of all, I like whenever Peter Sanderson gets to write something. Yep. Um, he's uh, obviously an acclaimed uh, historian but uh, of Marvel and DC, but I'm always uh, happy when he gets a, a writing credit. It's got Mark Bagley on art. The one problem I have with this, though, it is that it's probably one of the most egregious examples of uh, word balloons not being anywhere near the character that they're describing. So <laughs> if you don't know who these characters are, it is atrocious because that's not how you lay out word bubbles. Like the whole point usually is that you want to have it so that as you're following along, it matches the art in some way. But if I don't know who Alicia Masters is and that you know word bubble is underneath Mole Man, like what is happening? Well, yeah, and Wolverine is in the top right corner, but he, the he, Daredevil's talking about him in the bottom left corner. Yeah, it's terrible. Like it's just, and like Sabretooth is right. First of all, they give him the, the dash, which at this point, I don't think he had the dash anymore. And it's underneath, I don't know, I don't even know who that guy was. Oh, I guess that's Heimdall. It's not even a good Heimdall. Like it's just the whole thing is, <laughs> is poorly laid out. It's finely written. Who cares? Like it's, you know, it gets the job done, but it's just the weirdest decision. I don't know who edited this or lettered it or both. Yeah, I think that there's just too much text for the amount of space that was left for these people. And so the whoever, I guess, I don't know if it's the letterer who gets to decide where the bubbles go in this case, but um, they're doing the best they can. I think it would have been a little bit better if Alicia and Mole Man and all those guys in the top row were down more so that the bubbles could go over top of their heads rather than underneath them. Because that that way, it's also, it's just the weird placement where you have to read through the middle of the page and then bend upward into the, the top right corner. That's just generally not usually how bubbles are laid out. Yeah. Uh, so it'd be better if it would run around the top and then curve down toward the watcher's head. And then that would lead you <laughs> down to Daredevil's feet where the next row of bubbles would start. So you'd have this kind of a, um, a backwards S. Okay. 
Weird. But, but the way they have it now is like you get up to to, to the top corner where the bubbles are, where Wolverine is. And it's not even that, like, um, they're not even in the proper order here. So you have the bubble that's underneath uh, Wolverine that says, but there are other people I know about who have actual superhuman senses. And then the tail leads you to the next group of, of balloons, but it's it's attached to the bottom balloon, but you have to read the top balloon first. You sh- <clears throat> the tail should be telling you what to read next. So you should technically read the bottom bubble first and then work your way up to the top of the page, but that's not <laughs> how it's how it's supposed to be read. No. Anyway, that's. Uh, do you have anything to say about the the superhuman power sets in general? No. It it it, it, it you know it's it's what I would expect them to let Peter write. You know, yep. something kind of expository. Uh, kind of handbook style explaining the you know comparison between characters it's it's a nice little throw in it's i mean you always get something like that in these types of annuals so i do appreciate it on that respect some of these characters i didn't even know had superhuman senses and so no? that, well it's a good thing that they had this story for you yeah it actually it it was interesting especially i think mole man was the the one that i didn't know about the most um mm. that he had sort you know heightened abilities because of the time he spent underground or whatever so that was ni- that was interesting, but yeah, it was good. I do like those pages, and I wish that Marvel did that kind of fun stuff more often in their books because they kind of don't really do that anymore. No, it is interesting too that um, again, kind of being out of sequence with the times. Daredevil, um, you know, seems a little happy-go-lucky in that picture. I mean, like it just yeah, that's right. not it's it's not it doesn't sound like the Daredevil you've been reading in this period yeah. at all. Like that just kind of takes you out. Um, the next story. It's interesting that you, so you have the Fat Boy story, which is so Gregory Wright does two separate stories, but they're basically the same night and they bleed into the into the into each other. Yeah, because like Daredevil is like, oh, what's that? And then he comes over to this story. It's weird that it's not right away, uh, but there's kind of a, that weird breakup first with that two pager on the radar senses. Right. Um, and again, it feels much more in tune with the Daredevil book because you have John Romita Jr. doing it, and you realize how much that makes a difference to really enjoying the story. Um, yeah. Because even though it's not in the senti, it feels totally right and artistically consistent. Um, and it feels, you know, it still feels very depressing because you still have, you know, child abduction. Like, you know, if you told me this was Anacenti, I would not have said no. I wouldn't have said, that doesn't feel like Anacenti. It does feel very on model. Yeah, I think Gregory definitely figured out uh, what she was trying to to accomplish. And that I, the I think these kids, the fat boys, they're called, these kids that are here, um, I haven't seen another artist draw these kids, so I don't know. I, I can't imagine anybody but John kind of doing them because he they they're so stylized in his style because mm. they're kids. They look more cartoony than the adults do because they're children, and I accept the the antics that they get up to get that they that they get into because they look the way that they do. Mm. Uh, and so I think that if another person who were trying to draw children maybe more realistic or something like that, it, it wouldn't have the same effect. Yeah. And then we have another Gregory Wright story, uh, a Ben Yurick story, Bushwhacker, which I guess is supposed to be, again, before Daredevil, you know, went on the lamb. Yeah. Um, and very... Again, very depressing. Like, these are for kids, right? Like, kids read these? (laughs) But, you know, this is coming off the Frank Miller run, right? So it's like, talk about kids not reading. I know. They they shouldn't be reading Daredevil. They haven't... Daredevil hasn't been written for kids for a number of years now. No, I know, I know. You're absolutely right. There's just something about, like... There, the late seventies, and then you have the, the kind of the mid eighties. There's such a tonal shift um, in comics in general, but like there was still 
some of that kind of repealing to a younger demographic still at, at times, whereas Daredevil feels like it just throws that out the window more than most books. Yeah. So Wills Portacio does the artwork in this one, and he, so the fat boys do show up, but they don't get into any antics, so I don't have to worry about them being drawn by somebody else. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you can tell that Wills is definitely one of the up-and-comers that is going to change the face of the way comics are done because of the way he lays yes. out his panels here. And so on page 48, there's that one panel with uh, Yurik lighting up his cigarette with the taxi cab going behind him. Mm. And he's, he's dropped the borders from that page to give it um, a much more of a um, an open kind of like, I'm ending this conversation, kind of a, he's just walking away and the conversation is open-ended. I like that aspect there. And then you turn a couple of pages and Bushwhacker enters and and like you get a spray of bullets and that's an inset panel uh, to show to really focus in on the action there and then you the very next page you have Bushwhacker's history where you know he talks about being a, a priest before and that panel is like jagged and zigzag and leaves a negative space at the bottom there's a lot of mm -hmm. just interesting things that he does here to show you that he's trying to play with non-standard panel layouts which is something that is going kind of going through a transition here in the late 80s uh, because it was mm -hmm. very standard before and coming up through the 90s it just all goes out the window all of those rules <laughs> yeah what, what is interesting i mean for a york story i mean it's a, it's an interesting one but you know it's one of those things where if you think about continuity too much it might ruin the story a little for you. I mean, we've had a story where, you know, in Born Again, how Yurik felt about, you know, being involved in the story and he, you know, was attacked and he wouldn't even say Murdoch's name or even think it because he was so afraid. And yet here he seems much more badass than perhaps he should be, uh, especially as a guy who's, you know, been, you know, Electra oh, stabbed someone through the chest at a movie theater right in front of him. Uh, you know, he's had a sigh thrown at him and almost kill him. Uh, you know, he's he's been almost brutalized by the Kingpin's men because of, you know, the the Murdoch situation. And so like here, the fact that he's just kind of doing things a little blithely, I don't know if that really like it was a good story and it was really well done. I just don't know if it really fits with what this character's really been through. I think that this is almost more of a Bushwhacker story than it is a Yurik story mm. because uh, Bushwhacker is the one who has a change of heart at the end of the issue um, and goes through a character progression. So, uh, yeah, but other, yeah, I mean, all of these stories are just kind of like, eh, they've just been a little mediocre uh, compared to the regular stuff. And I find yeah. that's just the case with, with, um, with annuals in general around this era is like they fill it with content and it doesn't have to be the best content. They just got to meet their page quota. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy if you think about it, like, there's a what 64 pages in this thing like yeah. that's huge yeah it's really big um the last chapter in this annual is chapter seven of the saga of the serpent crown and like i don't even think i finished reading this story because it is so steeped in history and you have the very first page of the story is a complete like it's all exposition from the watcher there's so much text of stuff that you need to know in order to read these five pages of comics <laughs> And yeah. it's like I, uh, uh, I I tried, and because I was just so unfamiliar with what was going on, I had to stop. So, and this is another instance is like I think I w at some point will need to gather all of these together uh, because the Serpent Crown is a very interesting thing to me. The 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 idea mm. of it is very interesting. So I'd like to learn about the the history of it, but I can't do it with just a random chapter in an annual like this. No, it's not well set up. I mean, this is where. 
you know, in some ways the epics fail, right? Like, yeah. you know, when you have something like this where, you know, if you don't want to get the, I mean, by, I mean, I guess that's why the omnibus exists too, that if you really <laughs> wanted to, to have all the Atlantis attack stuff, you can. Um, but if you don't, then you're just going to have this sliver of it. And yeah, it doesn't really work as well on its own. It tries because, you know, it doesn't know if you've read all the, all the other chapters. Um, I do kind of appreciate that where, you know, yes, you have that mountain of exposition um, that would make even, make even Chris Claremont blush. But, um, you know, at the same time, like, you know, they got to don't, they don't know if you're going to read all the chapters. So I appreciate that. Right. And they do their best to try and entice you to buy the next chapter as well. I mean, that's the purpose of it is they yes. wanted you to they wanted people in 1989 to buy all 19 annuals or however many parts it is. Apparently, there was only 14 annuals that were part of this experiment. Oh, OK. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Well, not as many epics that I need to buy then, I guess. But I'm buying them all <laughs> anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, you'll eventually get them anyway. Eventually, I'll have every issue of of, um, of Atlantis Attacks eventually in epic format. Actually, that brings up a question. Uh, this is a random tangent, but Amazing Spider-Man, I can't remember. We haven't had the epic that has that, like... Um, the Atlantis Attacks uh, annual, have we? Venom debuted in 89, right? Yeah, I think so. And I we think have that's that volume. Right. The, the volume before that is the one that hasn't been released. No, the volume before that is Craven's Last Hunt. Well, the wedding was 21, annual 21. So the Amazing Spider-Man annual 23 is the one that's Atlantis Attacks. So I guess you're right. It is the volume after Venom, I guess. Which is Assassination, right? So we oh, we, we oh, haven't oh, we talked have about it. The epic is out, but we haven't talked about that yet. Okay. Because I, I realize I haven't checked the uh, contents, but does it have all the Spider-Man related chapters? Because the, obviously the, uh, the epics don't cover right now, at least, Spectacular or Web of or any of that stuff. Right. I'm pretty sure that they are not there. It only has the Amazing Spider-Man annual. Okay. Well, that's... <laughs> that's right. I'm We're going to have some fun times when we get there. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's keep on going over here to Daredevil. Two I was going to say, you want to talk about Daredevil, right? Yeah, let's talk about Daredevil. <laughs> Number 271. All right. Well, you know, I, I'm going to say as a proviso before we kind of get into this, I mean, we're going to talk about seven issues. I think the, these seven issues in a lot of ways will have less going on than the last annual did. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's because that's such condensed storytelling and uh, and kind of spreads out her story over these seven issues. So, yeah, I think we might be able to breeze through these, but let's see how it goes. Yeah. So in this issue, we have now I'm forgetting his name, but like this, you know, this guy's got a farm and he's dealing with the government and experiments he's got this daughter who you know hates him and wants to do everything she can to kind of you know stick it to her old man and use his money to kind of ruin things for him uh she's you know trying thinks herself kind of being a you know well-trained not vigilante per se but well-trained uh we find out that this guy in this genetics lab uh they're you know breeding these superhuman women uh there's number nine is his favorite and um, you know, she's the, you know, the, the best one who's got, you know, healing and she's super strong and will help serve. And like, that's, and then Daredevil kind of gets involved. Like, I can't even remember how Daredevil even shows up. Like he just kind of knows the woman. Oh, because this is the guy from the last volume where yep. he helped him with the, with, with the narcotics, which feels like a weird callback at this point, because we, that had been numerous issues and it felt like we had completely dropped that plot line. And now we're just going to pick it up randomly. The thing that confused me is that Daredevil was tipped off to the narcotics by uh, when he saved that guy from the helicopter crash, but drugs doesn't have anything to do with anything in this farm or the genetics or whatever. It's like, why did this guy have all of that cocaine? 
Yeah, I don't know. It's totally out of left field. But anyway, yes, that is right. He was given, uh, Daredevil was given a card saying, hey, if you need a place to stay, you can uh, stay with me over here. And so Daredevil makes his way over to this pig farm. And the guy thinks that he's just a normal blind guy, but doesn't realize he's actually Daredevil. Um, JRJR has some great art in this. I absolutely love, on the first page, just the shot of the pigs. Oh, I hate it. You hate it? I think I just find it. I, I just find it. You know, maybe not hate it. I I find it disturbing, and I don't like looking at it. Okay, it's supposed to be disturbing because it's a disturbing yeah. farm, right? But he draws the pigs well. I just love the fact that that's our establishing shot of the farm. Mm. It's like it's yeah. we're not seeing the the pens or whatever. We're just seeing the overcrowded pigs who have nowhere to to to, to move. And then he does the same thing two pages later on page sixty three. He does the same thing with the chickens right in the middle yeah. panel. It's just all the chickens crammed together in their cage. And it's like, it looks great. And it shows exactly what it needs to show that these creatures are in uh, not very good conditions. I mean, I feel like that's Anne's kind of, uh, you know, meta commentary on humans, is it not? Like, like we're all kind of the pigs. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> that the government is cramming us into their own versions of uh, what we are supposed to be or something. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised. Um, I do, I would say that the first establishment shot of Daredevil on page 66 yeah. is a stunner. That's for I was sure. going to bring that up too. Which is interesting too, because... Because he's stooped. Like, he's not even just standing. Like, it's just an interesting musculature, but it looks great. It, he's looking into this window that's right beside him that's kind of covered up by the, the word balloons. Mm. But yeah, you're right. The pose is fantastic because he's not just standing there. He's not crouching. He's leaning over. That foreshortening of the torso and everything is like, that's that's not an easy pose to draw. And it no. looks really, really great. And what I really like also is, and I know this is kind of something that JR does with his shading, and Al Williamson is fully embracing it here, is look at all of the lines to show an overcast sky. It's oh, just, yeah, it's chock a block. It is so incredible. And like, it's all freehand lines. It's not, he's not using a straight edge to make them or anything like that. It's just all freehand and it's so precise and it goes all the way the length of the page. And you think about how large an actual original size artwork uh, mm. poster board page of, of comic art is. Like, that's a lot of lines. <laughs> yeah. I also really like the uh, the colors on the page by Max Scheel. Um, yeah. This, I mean, like the, the colors on Daredevil look really strong. Like they, he really jumps off the page, um, like the darkening of the kind of the shadows of the, the chest, et cetera. Like it really looks really good. It's interesting that you compliment the colorist for that because Daredevil his, himself is only one color. Yeah. All of the, 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 all of the weight and the roundness and the shadow is because of Al Williamson's inks and JR's pencils as well. But it's all solid. He's just a straight, solid red. There's only one color on his costume, and it's red. Mm. That's right. But I do like the whole color palette in general. It just uses kind of a, a muted, earthy tone to talk about this earthy situation that we have on the farm here. It's all throughout this book. We don't get into mm. the very bright colors. Daredevil's really the only thing that stands out throughout this entire... Uh, he's like the brightest thing in the entire book. It's interesting looking at the uh, the girl. If you didn't know any better, and again, knowing that uh, JR's association, you'd almost think it was Kitty Pride. With the curly hair and stuff, yeah, that's how. Yeah, she, she kind of look. looks like eighties, eighties Kitty Pride. I mean, again, he had an association with the X Men around. Well, not this time exactly; it would have been a few years earlier. But I mean, you know, he had drawn 
you know, a version of the X-Men and Kitty was there. Well, and you look at like the aerobics spandex that she's wearing looks like an X-Men yeah. outfit as well. It's colored with the blue and the gold. Yeah. If you didn't know it better, you'd be like, wow, Kitty Pride has grenades now. <laughs> I do wonder why JR would draw her with the marks on her face. Like she's got scratches or something. It, like there's something on her face. And I don't know if it's supposed to be dirty or what, but she mm. has it through the next couple of issues and then it just goes away. And they make no mention of why it's like that, why her face is like that. I was wondering if yeah. she's like got some sort of scars because of some sort of past abuse or, or violence or something, but they never talk about it. Well, I guess they don't. I do. Um, I also like the shot of Daredevil riding the car or the truck. Um, yeah. That looks. It looks pretty cool. I mean, it feels like a very, you know, well, Daredevil slash Spider Man thing to do. And I like that. You know, she's trying to shake him off and like smacks him into a tr uh, a tree. Like I like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's good. It's good action. Um, one of the interesting things to note about the story is that Anne makes Daredevil question animal liberation. Mm. It's interesting that, you know, she obviously cares deeply about the issue of animal cruelty, but uses Daredevil as the sounding board, I guess. And even the voice of reason is like, no, you can't let these animals free because they don't know how to survive. Most of the pigs have broken legs. They wouldn't, they would just die out there. I mean, I know they're going to die in here as well, but you're not making their life yeah. any better by liberating them. It is interesting, actually, I guess, you know, how ahead of her time Nesenti was with this type of discussion, because, you know, I feel like for a lot of mainstream people, they didn't really talk about this type of stuff with, you know, the, the treatment of of animals uh, used for food production, et cetera, until you had stuff like Fast Food Nation coming out that kind of popularized the discussion. Right. Whereas this is very early still. And like, you know, it wasn't as widespread. It was totally out of left field. And this is why I love comic books. It's like, we think that we're going to get a night, a story about animal cruelty. And then the guy goes down into his basement and he's got a, a freaking science lab uh, in his <laughs> underground basement, a bunker or whatever it is. And he's making human beings. It's like, this just goes to the next level. And I love it. And I love his curly mustache and everything. It's just, uh, it's bonkers. And it's pretty funny. Yeah, it, it, it just commits to it, right? Because... Yep. A lot of what happens with that guy is just kind of bonkers and weird. Yes. <laughs> well, and what do you think about the number nine character? Like, I mean, we see her for the first time here. How do you feel about this character? Uh, in general, I think she's kind of an odd character. I don't know that I really care for her all that much, um, but she does go through a very interesting progression. Uh, I kind of feel like she tries to do the whole... And this happens anytime there's an artificial human, like with data or with vision. It's like, what does it mean to be human? Mm. Kind of a kind of a, yeah. a deal. And that's definitely and, her arc here. Yeah, I, I do feel that Daredevil is a lot more of a cipher, especially in these seven issues that, you know, he doesn't have as much of a personality. He gets involved, but only to a degree. And we kind of mentioned this in the last episode that we did on the last epic that, uh, you know, he's kind of like the, you know, um, well, I mean, here at least he's with a, a regular group of people, but he's, it's kind of like, you know, the old Incredible Hulk TV series. He kind of breezes into town, gets involved in some action and then leaves. Yep. This at least, you know, he, he's here for a bit. But again, it's just kind of, we don't get a lot of him. We don't get a lot of yep. what Matt Murdock really is. It, it's, it's leading up to something because he tries to leave a couple of times. He tries yeah, to do true. that walking away thing and he just keeps on either he himself feels like he can't at that time or Brandy, the, the girl, uh, says to him, uh, you can't leave yet. You got a responsibility and he listens to her. So there's something about Brandy that is keeping Daredevil accountable at this point. I suppose that's true. 
All so, right, go on to the next issue. Sure. The next issue is number 272. It's called Liberation. Uh, Daredevil and Brandy find this girl who is running with the pigs and the chickens that they've just liberated and uh, they take her and they hide her because she has no memory who who she is and meanwhile Brandy's father hires a mercenary to kill whatever whoever the terrorist that just blew up his farm not knowing that it's his daughter what do you think of Shotgun? Shotgun is a character that is useful for one time but he doesn't have any real gimmick or personality that means that he needs to come back have you re- have you read any other issues with the shotgun before? No, I have not. How how often does he show up? Um, I don't think a lot. I first discovered him in 1997, I believe. Uh, he was part of a, a Spider-Man storyline at the time that Punisher was actually involved in, called Spider Hunt. And okay. uh, in fact, they actually it was a the shotgun and. Um, Punisher like faced off against each other briefly, and then they teamed up together. Um, <laughs> I liked him a lot more there than I did here. And why was that? Why, what's different about um, his character? I feel like here he's he's just played uh, I, not jokes per se, but he's he just they don't feel like they give him a lot of you know real smarts. Like he's just kind of a, a jockey with a gun. Uh, whereas later, I feel like they gave him a little bit more gravitas. Like he had a little bit more going on. Okay. And even though he was at the time just trying to cash in on a bounty, it just felt like he was given a little bit more credibility. Um, whereas here, I thought he was kind of pl- he was played a little loose. But I think every antagonist here is played a little loose. Um, this is also the issue where we get the first uh, the first meeting of the Inhumans in the in the in the storyline, and they don't have anything to do with the actual story. In fact, it's going to be a few issues before they even show up to meet with Daredevil. Um, it's all set up and it really is literally you could read that other graphic novel and then read these pages and the story literally continues right from that moment uh, into what's going on here the the child is missing it's been exiled I guess or taken to somewhere secret by Black Bolt and so Mm. Gargan is um, is, he's loyal to Medusa and is going to try and find out where this child is and uh, and he, I guess for some reason he thinks that Brandy's father has uh, some sort of dealings with with uh, with their moon base or something. I'm not I don't even remember what the deal was, but his trail leads him to Daredevil. A lot of that did seem a little bit like how many people know about like the Inhumans that there's a secret like exchange of like of genetics and stuff. Like it felt very strange at times. It did. Um, I mean, I, le- I didn't know that and I've read a bunch of inhuman stuff, but I, it was all kind of new information to me. I feel like a lot of the times there are conclusions that are jumped to that they just don't tell us about. One of the thing is that uh, they, you know, what's this guy's name? Shotgun. Shotgun says that, uh, he's going after this guy's daughter. He's going to find Brandy. And the guy is, I, how come I can't remember his name? Uh, Skip? That's what his name is, Skip. Brandy's dad is okay. Skip. Uh, Skip says, uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's too bad that it's my daughter that you have to go and shoot. He's like, how did you know that? The last issue, you had no clue who it was. And now you've hired this guy and all of a sudden you know who it is. Something happened that we weren't told about. Hmm. You know, I just double checked. It looks like... Um... Uh, Shotgun made various appearances in the early 90s in Punisher Warzone. You know, that makes sense. He is definitely a Punisher-type character. I mean, as I said, my connection to him was uh, Spider-Man, but uh, yeah, and he's been in... There was a Bullseye book that he was involved with. He was also involved with... um, 
uh, not that anyone cares about this, but um, he, you know, he has been around. He, he was in a, an, epi- an issue of uh, Bendis' Daredevil as well. So, you know, he, he pops up from time to time. He's not that well used, but, you know, he exists. I think, as I said, as of, with the limited uh, interactions I've had with the character, I think he benefits with further development later on. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, he's just used as a, as a, uh, he's a, know, a hired goon. Yep, exactly. What did you think of the action with, with Shotgun, though? Like, you know, he's got some, you know, cool kind of uh, jungle fight with Daredevil or in the forest or whatever. And he gets, you know, some trees, you know, hitting him back. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, Daredevil operating out of his environment and still being able to be very effective. Yeah, I think that that was great. As you don't get to see Daredevil fighting in trees very much because he's usually in the urban jungle. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that he's like just running through here, relying on his senses and the guy's shooting from afar and you just see the, the shotgun blasts like the, I, I, I really like it. I think that JR does an excellent job with his storytelling through this entire, uh, all of these issues. He's just really good. Um, with his action sequences, I have I have two comments before you summar or before one of us summarizes two seventy three. Okay. The first is that the cover I don't really like the move. Like it doesn't feel like it's really a sense of action and movement. It feels very static with Daredevil's pose because um, it doesn't feel like that's like an action pose. It feels like a really awkwardly placed pose, and and shotgun just doesn't quite look right. But I do like the lines because you have this sense of movement there, even though Daredevil himself doesn't feel like he's actually, you know, moving. So this is one thing about JR's art that I both like and dislike. It's, and you hit the nail on the head. It's like, you, you get a sense that the character is, you, you can tell that he's supposed to be moving, but it just looks like it's a static image. And I find mm. that his, a lot of his fight scenes uh, and when, when people are fighting or are uh, hitting each other and stuff, it does look like they are statues, like they are sculpted mm. and they're not moving. And it's, it's like a, um, one of the, you know, whatever those, those really highly detailed statues that you can buy of Daredevil. And he's in a cool pose, but he's just kind of there. And I find that a lot with JR's work. And if you look at a lot of his fight scenes, you'll see that uh, I think in the last one when when uh, he was fighting the Kingpin, there were just, was it the Kingpin? I can't remember. There were just some really, really awesome poses that showed that there were there was movement, but it just looked like they were statues. And I, I like that. I think it looks cool. But at the same time, if you can't, if it doesn't, if your mind doesn't see them moving, then that's a problem too. Yeah. Now on the next page, page one seven it feels very like this feels like a terminator type of thing this is you know in that era of big action stars and so this feels very much like shotguns like terminator um it also feels like a page where john amina jr had more time um because it feels like he spent a lot more time giving it proper development and adding a lot of line work that really does work for the character um but whereas there we'll see other parts where it feels like he's rushed whereas here it's looks like he spent time on it and again even that first big big uh, double page spread feels very terminator or kind of arnold of the time it's very true yeah that's a good point and that's um just the whole hunter like the relentless mercenary just kind of walking down the road shooting things going after the other guy as he runs away is very much a terminator style of a of a person anyway well i mean there's not a lot here like it's basically shotgun 
gets you know continuously given more bigger bigger guns, more expensive equipment, so he can you know go after Daredevil and Brandy and Number Nine. Whereas we get more development on the Inhumans, so getting closer and closer to them actually you know going to Earth to try and find uh, you know the missing set of Medusa. Um, you have more fighting between Shotgun and Daredevil, um, and a lot of it is you know exciting but not a lot of development and at the end uh, daredevil eats a sandwich <laughs> so i do like this issue because i like the fact that they uh, they know what's coming and they spend a lot of time actually preparing and setting up you know traps or outfitting this this uh this truck for when shotgun yeah. is going to come after them i like that because it's different than just kind of reacting they're they're preparing for this and then yeah, we sure. get to see the payoff for that in the back half of this issue when Shotgun does show up and they have like their barrels full of glass and their oil and all this kind of stuff and, and they're able to stop the guy. So I thought that was kind of fun. It's very Home Alone. <laughs> That's true in that sense, yes. Home Alone. Uh, and then Brandy gets an outfit in this one. She's wearing this weird uh like leotard that has stars and stripes on it like the american flag <laughs> yep and it's like how frank miller is that outfit right it's like that's something i think i could see in the dark knight strikes back or whatever <laughs> yeah you know you're not wrong oh uh, okay so yeah more of this inhuman subplot that just seems so out of place um, there are not very, very many words in this issue. I think that Andesenti lets all of the action speak for itself, so the, the dialogue is at a minimum. There's no chance for any like long conversations about the state of the world or animal cruelty or anything, so that's saved for this issue coming up. I was going to say, uh, issue 274, extremely dialogue-heavy. Um, I do like the opening shot, even though it's kind of silly, of Daredevil like, lounging back, as nine brings him like you know food and a drink, it's you know it's it's very much what Nesenti's kind of trying to get at here, and the ideas of gender norms and and, and nine being the blank slate and, and being designed to kind of uh, just serve. And there's a lot of discussion and, and fighting between nine and Brandy on uh, you know who's you know what women should be. Uh, you have a lot of like the dad you know getting ready to you know come and you know talk to his daughter and confront her like there's just a lot of kind of setup and getting to the point again you have more of the inhumans at the end it's kind of funny that they spend so much time barricading the front door and then he just like walks in the side door with his like keys <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> i thought that was great which which is bizarre but i guess they weren't expecting him to just come on his own right um and then the, the you know the, the dad and daredevil have a fight if you could call it that um it's very much like a but like like a few hits like it's not really that much um oh yeah this is the okay that fight there this is what i was thinking about um when when daredevil takes this guy down uh look at these poses and it's like you can tell that there's movement but yes. it looks like there's statues at the same time yes absolutely and then I think, is this the one with the, the weird kind of ending that you just, suddenly the Inhumans are there and you're like, what is happening? That's right. Yeah. Lockjaw uh, teleports them right into their living room. It's, and, yeah. and I do gotta, I gotta say, like, I, I like, I like his Karnak and his, his uh, Gorgon here and his Lockjaw. Lockjaw looks gigantic, but, you know, very, and given that this is such a street level book for the most part, although, you know, occasional demons, um, you know, it's nice to have such a, a weird, you know, hard right. And then you have this giant, you know, teleporting magical dog or like, mystical, not mystical, but like, you know, powered up dog. Like it's such a weird direction, but considering the next two issues, perfectly on point. 
Yeah, it's like we've been dealing with some real world situations here with the with the pig farm where we, this issue, the first half of this issue is very heavy talking about, uh, you know, Anna Senti's views on, on feminism. And then we have to counterbalance that with comic book sci-fi. So let's get the Inhumans mm-hmm. actually in here. Crazy. Uh, something to note uh, at the very beginning, you were talking about how um, the, the, in the splash page, you know, number nine is serving a meal to Daredevil to kind of emphasize the gender roles that have been programmed into nine's brain. And then Brandy is uh, fixing a car and she has on her uh, her handkerchief on her head. And it's very reminiscent of Maggie the Mechanic, you know, the iconic woman, the I can do it woman um, in mm. the, you know, in the 40s. And that's a feminist icon of like, you know, women can do things that men can do and that kind of stuff. So I don't think it's a, uh, a coincidence that she is, you know, covered in, in motor oil and fixing a car while she's talking to Brandy about this stuff. No, I guess you're right. That's very interesting. Um, on page 150, Daredevil decides not to get involved between Brandy and her dad. It's been interesting because he's been along for the ride so far, and he's aided. Mm. Uh, I guess his whole thing is like, you know what? I will go along for the ride. You can blow up this farm. I'm just going to be here to make sure things don't get too out of control. But he's not taking a side either way. He's not for Brandy's uh, crusade, but he's also not against it. So when when push comes to shove here and Brandy and Skip are both saying, Daredevil, who are, whose side are you on? He's like, I'm not going to have anything to do with either of you guys. You know, you you can work this out yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's weird too because he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leaving you in the custody of your daughter. Like, she might beat him up. Like, right. you don't know exactly. And he's like, I'm not. My hands it's, are clean. I'm walking away from this. <laughs> yeah, and then we move like right into acts of vengeance, where like you got to feel for. Well, I'm curious at the time. Like, I know that obviously now editorial is a lot stronger in that they kind of, you know, not necessarily push people, but you know, they mandate a lot of tie-ins. I'm wondering at the time how much leeway she, uh, Anna Sinti had to choose which one she was playing in, because not everyone took part in all the tie-ins. Now, Acts of Vengeance, I think they did, but like the ones before them, like Inferno, not everyone did Inferno. Uh, usually it was just the X-Books for the most part. Um, you know, Fall of the Mutants, same thing, but she was involved in both. So it's just curious that, you know, by this point, everyone's in Acts of Vengeance, so there's really no getting away from that. But it's just interesting how many events she's had to play with. Yeah, and she ha- she is also an editor, so I'm sure she actually um, was in on the dis- discussions about what's going on here as well. Um, Acts of Vengeance, for if you're listening and you don't know what it is, um, all of the, the, the main bad guys like Doctor Doom, Magneto, Loki, and Kingpin, uh, they all get together and like and they say to each other, you know, uh, we keep fighting our respective superheroes and we, we're not getting anywhere. Our methods are old and, and they keep failing. So you know what? Let's just uh, switch up and send, we'll send your villain after my hero and we'll see if that those guys can take him down. And so the whole point of Acts of Vengeance is that we're seeing villains show up in books that normally wouldn't be there. So we get Ultron here, who is normally an Avengers villain. He has no reason to be here fighting Daredevil, but he shows up. And you know what? Anne actually makes the best of the situation and really works it into the 
into the story. So it has a, a purpose beyond just being a tie-in. And I really appreciated that. I do, th- yeah, I do think she definitely put more thought into it than she probably needed to. Um, like even with Dr. Doom, like wanting to show obviously his superiority and, you know, having to be on a, t- you know, a, a cup ball with the Kingpin probably would have rankled him because he would have been like, well, this guy's just a common thug. Right. So he's like, well, this guy can't even deal with this person. Well, obviously I can. And he's like, oh, I don't even need to do it myself. I'm just going to use this robot. I'm so smart. I'm going to, you know, use all these different versions of Ultron because that, you know, again, I'm my hubris. I'm better than everyone. And it feels very natural for Doom to do that. Yeah. And again, have so much hubris. He doesn't even really care. He just sends the robot off and doesn't have any oversight. Like, again, <laughs> yeah. feels very in keeping with who that character is. Um, that, you know, it's just just some dude in a red costume. It's not it's not Richard and his clan were actual, you know, equals uh, or that he'd never actually say equals. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's interesting. Now, I think I like these issues a lot for how they're written. Yeah. I do not like JRJR on technology. I don't like him on Ultron. I don't like how the, I, I just don't think he does a great job on Ultron. And we talked before about his, his posing sometimes. And I think it's even worse with robots um, that sometimes his robots and technology looks so stiff and lifeless and there's just not a lot to them. Um, Whereas I think the story is a lot more interesting. This, you know, juxtaposition of, you know, this prior good version of Ultron with these many versions that were bad, creating this new, you know, mixed up Ultron 13. I actually remember I used to play a, the Marvel miniatures game Heroclix uh, a lot. And they had a, a special version of Ultron, which was Ultron 13. And his dial was all full of craziness because he was like <laughs> sometimes good, sometimes bad because he couldn't make up his mind. Oh, and yeah. that was represented on the flavor text and, uh, and how the character operated. So I really like how the character operates. I just wish, I don't know, the JRJR artwork for me doesn't work except for the cover of 276 because that's just a really cool image of Daredevil standing there with you know an Ultron head on a pike. That's cool. Um, but yeah. otherwise, I just don't. I'm not a big fan of his Ultron. So I I agree with you. I feel like Jr. does a lot of the same things when he whenever he draws robots. And if you go to page uh, 162 and we see the one shot of uh, Ultron taking up the entire left side and he's his knees are mm-hmm. kind of bent awkwardly. But you look at his arms and the joints on his arms they're like a like a vacuum cleaner hose or something like that, rather than actually <laughs> being joints. So you get like a you never actually see the elbow bend at a at an angle. It's always just kind of uh, curved. Do you remember the issue um, that JR did of Amazing Spider-Man with the Spider Slayer? He was in his black costume, I think it was right before the wedding. And Smythe oh, yeah. Jr., it's the the one where um, he it, it's a purple robot. And JR draws mm-hmm. the limbs just like this with with these um, these kind of bendy tubes rather than actual joints. He, like, he designed the robot kind of the same way, in a sense. Yeah. I do like on page 163, like the weird kind of energy emanating off of Ultron's head. That's probably yep. the most I like as Ultron. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Uh, like you said, I found a great enjoyment in the storyline because Ultron and Number Nine and Daredevil are all simultaneously going through identity issues, and yes. and Ultron is used as uh, as sort of a catalyst to 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 bring Nine's uh, views of her own identity to the forefront. Um, they have a, a great conversation where they talk about what it means to be human or what it means to be to have flaws or to be not not perfect and you know number nine's thing is she was designed to be perfect and that's Mm. how she views herself but then she realizes there's more to being 
uh, you know, just a pretty face. She starts yeah. now to realize that her actions are repressive in some in some ways. It's very interesting how, like, again, the Cynthia is a really interesting way of using Ultron's like artificial intelligence, but kind of showing that duality that exists between a lot of people. That you know, this you know, Ultron's been like, I want to kill this people, but I also like this person. Like trying to to balance these things that it doesn't understand. Yeah. Why do I have competing programming? all these voices in my head. Like it's kind of a, it's interesting way of using artificial technology or artificial intelligence, sorry, to kind of show the the struggles everyone kind of has and not just, you know, and you know, the idea of identity and what you really want and the, you know, the, the competing, you know, the better angels of our nature competing against the devils and how do you, you know, go about that and using it in a way to kind of use technology to show that that's still something that everyone goes through. Right. Yeah. I love all these splash pages at the end. The, the last four pages are pretty much all splash pages. Mm. It's very cool. Um, but yeah, so we go on to issue number 276. This one's called the, the Hundred Heads of Ultron. <laughs> Yep, and, it is. Yeah, and you get a couple of cool splash pages here. The double page spread on 178 and 179 of this mountain of Ultron heads. It's just fantastic. I don't know where he got all of them, but it's pretty cool. He climbs the mountain to take his place at the top of uh, of in, of artificial intelligence. Meanwhile, uh, Daredevil, Gorgon, and Karnak attempt to take down Ultron uh, various ways. And um, he, you know, they just, uh, this whole issue is just kind of them fighting back. Uh, they can't even really get up the mountain until the very end of the issue. They spend almost the entire issue trying to just climb the, the mountain. Yeah, it's interesting. But I, uh, I, I quite dug it. I did too. I think that this was a neat a neat issue. I love on page 186 and 187, just the four uh, vertical panels of Ultron climbing the mountain. Uh, and it's kind of a, they kind of use it as this metaphor of he is ascending this mountain, but then his intelligence is also ascending like to the point where he understands who he is. It's like a revelation or his, his mind is becoming unclouded. And the revelation he comes to is that he is um, he is imperfect because Dr. Doom put all of these minds in him. So now he has to reach perfection. He's going to reprogram himself. And we don't really know what that's going to do after because Daredevil, uh, like we don't know what his plan is going to be after he re reprograms himself because the heroes kind of take him out. What do you think of the, uh, the, the way the issue ends? Um, I thought it was interesting that because number nine formed this connection with this version of Ultron that nobody else uh, formed, like the, through the conversations that these two had, she understood because she's also in the same place as him. Uh, she realized she realizes that she is a flawed person as well, created for a singular purpose that is is actually not um, something that she should be doing. And Ultron wasn't doing anything wrong, technically. He wasn't hurting uh, anybody. Yeah, that's true. He wasn't actually trying to execute his programming at that point. No. And so she, I think she feels that Daredevil's actions are out of place. Like, he shouldn't have done that. So she actually feels sympathy and very sorry for Ultron being destroyed at the end here. Everyone gets sympathy sometimes. Yeah. So 
I'll let you take the lead on the next one, um, just because I'm having trouble remembering all the kind of intricacies of it. But oh, uh, man. that's because there are a lot of intricacies. So this is kind of a fill-in issue. Uh, yes. Ralph Macchio even gives us a little editorial note to say that this stuff happens before Daredevil's little road trip here. It's called A Crown of Horns. It's written by Rick Leonardi. And it revolves around this therapist. Well, hold on. It's, it's, it's written by Anne, but it's illustrated by Rick Leonardi. Oh, sorry. Did I say that it was written by him? Yeah, I meant it was uh, illustrated by him. Okay. It revolves around this therapist who whose wife has some her own mental issues. She has hallucinations. And he's got this weird fascination. Instead of trying to help her, he just wants her to have these hallucinations on purpose so that he can study her. And so he like goes out of his way to actually be a very mean and awful person in order to bring out these hallucinations because she gets them in in moments of stress. And so Daredevil, um, I can't even remember why he's over there for dinner, but there it's just an extremely uncomfortable and awkward scene where he's like trying to kiss her and grope her and stuff in front of Matt and it's like don't worry he's blind he he like he can't see anything that's going on and that puts her in this in this position of of stress she feels like she's chained to the to the chair it's just so bizarre it's really awkward it's a very awkward issue and in the end mm-hmm. Daredevil or Matt Murdock actually because he's not in his costume at all in this entire issue Matt convinces no. this guy that he's doing the wrong thing and that he should actually be helping his wife and then the guy has a turn of heart and decides to actually get his wife some real treatment that is not him because he is he is too close to the situation yeah it's so I also felt like the art was a little inconsistent I felt like at the end of the issue uh, the husbands looked older <laughs> Like he he, yeah. he looked like a much younger man at the beginning of the issue, or maybe he aged somehow. I don't know. <laughs> like, and I also think that Matt didn't really look like Matt. There are a few times when I didn't even realize it was him. Like at the very last page, if he weren't holding his cane. Oh yeah, like, for sure. Is that actually Matt? I'm not sure. It was a weird fill-in, you know. Yep. Like, it, 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 and again, you know, because what Anne is doing is so different. They can't just have, you know, if, if JRJR takes off and she's not doing an issue without him uh, in the current narrative, they have to kind of do a weird, you know, really disconnected prior story that takes place, you know, months or whatever earlier. And it makes everything feel all the more unimportant yeah. and more of a fill-in. Like, you know, a, a good fill-in in theory is, you know, Evergreen. But the problem is at this point, Daredevil's not an Evergreen. You can't stick an Evergreen story in. It has to be of this era or we're just doing flashbacks which is and what we end up getting but it doesn't really add anything to anyone's story we never see these characters again it's just an odd it's not even really well illustrated by Leonardo to be honest it's not my favorite of his work and it's just kind of a weird awkward story yeah, I think Rick Leonardi definitely benefits from the embellishments from Terry Austin. That's when I think he's mm. at his best. Ella Williamson plays it pretty straight here uh, as the as his inker. But you're right. I mean, he doesn't. It doesn't have any bearing on anything because it's a fill-in issue, and that's kind of the point of the fill-in issue is that it can't have any bearing on anything because it can be slotted no, in know. whenever. So it's inconsequential, but that's, you know, if they ever did, and um, I guess it would be included in an Anacenti omnibus because it's still written by Anne. So this is a fill-in yeah. issue that would still see the light of day uh, later on down yeah, the road. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting if you chron- if if you reordered it chronologically, it would be interesting. But, like, you know, it's it, 
just because it's a fill-in though, it doesn't need to be, you know, I don't know. The best fill-in I can think of is The Commuter Cometh by uh, Peter David, right? Yeah, like right. that's, that, that's, that has nothing to do with what was going on, but again, was so good that you didn't care. True. Um, and, you know what I mean? And, and again, and it didn't feel out of place. And I guess, and it's not anyone's fault here, but I guess she made a decision and maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like she made a decision. I'm not going to do my current ongoing storyline without JRGR. If he needs a, a month off or whatever, I'll give him that and I'll just do a flashback story. And that's her yep. choice. Or it could have been that Anne wrote this story like even before she was on Daredevil and it was just sitting in a, in a filing cabinet somewhere. Yeah, maybe. But, but even the, I feel like if it was more of a, it feels like something she did more in the moment because there's no supporting cast. Whereas I feel right. like if it was a true inventory story, it might've had somebody. Yeah. So this is the breaking point in this volume. Uh, the next issue goes into a multi-part story that carries us through the rest of this volume. So we're going to stop here and save the rest of our conversation for uh, next the next episode. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading these next issues because I want to see where the Inhuman story goes. And everyone's talking about this uh, meeting with Mephisto and this this face-off between the two. And so I'm uh, excited to read it <laughs> and finish off this book. Yeah, like I mean, I'm interested to read the rest of the Daredevil issues because it's been a long time since I've read them. Um, however, what I'm not looking forward to is the glut of annuals at the ba- back end of this book. Uh, yeah. Um, because, I mean, I think that takes us from, I don't know, page 340 to basically the end, which is 480. So that's like 140 pages of stories that may not matter to us. So, so, so you know what? a bit of a slog. We, we don't have to read all of those if you don't want to. Um, this... Oh, no, I, I absolutely feel like we should because it's the epics. We cover the epics. <laughs> okay, and okay. They're, and they are reprinted in the epics. But it's just interesting. Like, I'm excited for the Daredevil stuff. The other stuff is going to be, you know, different. And maybe I'll love it. You know, I don't know. Okay, I've already read the Silver Surfer issue because it's in one of the Silver Surfer epics that I've already talked about. And the story is interesting, so we'll see what happens. I haven't read the other three parts yet, but we'll do that. So that's interesting. So Silver Surfer only had the one part? Yeah, because this story, the the, the life form character, and this is probably a conversation we should have in the next episode, but the life form character... It carries through the four annuals, but the character, the, the heroes of each of those annuals, don't carry into the other stories, into the other chapters. There are pretty much four self-contained stories, just with this one character. So they've included all four parts here, but they've they're only going to include the singular ones in Punisher and in Hulk and in Silver Surfer, and it doesn't matter because they're standalone stories. Which is why I was going to say we don't have to read all of the annuals in this instance because we would still have a complete story if we only read the Daredevil chapter. Okay, interesting. Um, you know, I, I I think we should we should do them all. Okay, then we will. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Adam. Uh, thanks, everybody, for taking a listen. Uh, check out Adam on his podcast, Comic Shenanigans, where he's got some great interviews and great comic commentary. And uh, you can check out myself on uh, Facebook and on Twitter, on Instagram, and now also on YouTube. Search for Epic Marvel Podcast and find our brand new channel over there. And join my Epic Collection group on Facebook to talk about all of the new and upcoming releases about, uh, about Epic Collections. We'd love to have you. Uh, And that does it for our episode today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next week when we talk about more Daredevil. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thank you. Thank you.